All right. I am doing a study session here on June 23rd, 2022. This is Derek Moultrie. I am in my study and uh, came across an article uh, while I was having lunch. And it talked about on Investor Business Daily about Andrew Carnegie set up a new kind of charity. And it says here, Andrew Carnegie was the richest man in the world, but he didn't want to claim the title for long. And the article was a really great read. Uh, I'll read a little bit to you. And this is from my own personal study, but I'm going to record this as if I may publish it one day. Uh, so bear with me. Um, instead, the business titan decided to give away his money. He spent the last chapter of his life donating almost all of his wealth. And in the process, Carnegie used the same sharp thinking that helped him accumulate billions to ultimately give the money away. <clears throat> In many ways, Carnegie's lasting legacy is more about the money he donated and the good it did rather than the wealth, rather than the wealth that he accumulated. Scottish-born Carnegie, 1835 to 1919, who grew up in a one-room cottage, came to America at age 13 as a poor immigrant. He rose from railroad employee to savvy business investor to iron and steel magnate. In the last 18 years of his life, he shifted gears from accumulating wealth to sowing seeds uh, for others to attain wealth. <laughs> he tackled philanthropy with the same intensity as his business dealings. Rather than simply donating to worthy causes, he devised an overarching philosophy to solve what he called the problem of rich and poor. Let's write that down. The problem of rich and poor. And once again, this is a study session. I am simply taking information, taking notes. I may add a little bit of commentary, but I'm here to study and see what sticks out and what I will take notes of. And once again, I don't know if I will publish this or not. He feared the long-term effects of wealth inequality. Now think about that. He died in 1919. He feared the long-term effects of wealth inequality. We're now in 2022. And I host a podcast, Black Equity Podcast, that studies wealth inequality, the racial wealth gap, however you like to deem it. So how poignant is this? Author uh, said Andrew Larson, author of The Man Who Loves Libraries, The Story of Andrew Carnegie. So now there's a topic here, uh, focus on giving like Andrew Carnegie. In his 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, Carnegie wrote, in bestowing charity, the main consideration should be to help those who will help themselves to provide part of the means by which those who desire to improve may do so. And he added that charity should also give those who desire to use the aids by which they may rise to assist, but rarely or never to do all. <clears throat> uh, okay, so we'll see here on the screen, I pulled up the gospel of wealth. I never heard of this before, or it didn't, register in my mind. I've heard of Andrew Carnegie from reading Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and also reading um, Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. 
And so when I saw this article, I said, oh, Andrew Carnegie, I've, you know, I've heard of him. I had no idea what this article would bring. But then I opened the article up and I saw the gospel of wealth. And I said, wait, maybe I need to study this. And so that's why, why we're recording now. On the road to fulfill his vision, he founded the Carnegie Foundation of New York in 1911. He also launched programs to advance international peace and public education. He also launched programs to advance international peace and public education. I like that. International peace, public education. Those, those are in alignment with me. I can work with that. Let's see what, what else he did. Among his charitable initiatives, he laid out the groundwork to build more than 2,500 free public libraries around the world. When he initially proposed the idea in 1881, public libraries were rare. Hmm. Hmm. That's a key there. Libraries were rare back then. I wonder what's rare today that should be everywhere. Libraries were rare back then. Okay, wrote that down. Andrew Carnegie believed that the main goal of philanthropy should be to support the system that made wealth possible, said Leslie Lewinsky, a retired professor at Indiana University and philanthropy expert. He saw his libraries as a way to create opportunity to help people achieve their own level of success and wealth. Hmm, okay. Next category says, show people how to make more money. Given his humble origin, Carnegie reflected often on how he amassed such riches. He wondered how so much wealth winds up in the hands of so few. Carnegie favored capitalism over socialism. He sought to deploy his funds to empower more people to succeed. Carnegie believed the richest people should give back to those, back to help those who could accept such help and prosper. Mm. That's key there. Give to those who would accept such help. He proclaimed that the duty of a wealthy person is to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds. Let me start that over. He proclaimed that the duty of a wealthy person is to consider all sur surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, mm, which, he, which he is called upon to administer to produce the most beneficial results for the community. Consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds. Wow. Consider all, read that again. Surplus revenues. Wow. That's that's revenues as trust funds, which he could call upon to administer that you administer. Wow. To produce more beneficial results for the community. Mm. To benefit the community. This is kingdom of God blessings right here. He wanted to expand wealth rather than redistribute it. 
to use philanthropy in ways that create opportunity for more philanthropy in the future. Like Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, who has pledged to give away much of his fortune rather than leave it to his children, Carnegie rejected the notion that wealth should stay within families. Hmm. That's different thinking right there. He rejected the idea that wealth should stay within families. Wow. I never knew this. Thank you. Instead, he sought to establish organizations, including well-funded trusts and institutions that would promote his ideals in perpetuity. I want to look that word up, perpetuity. I feel like that's like uh, ongoing. Is that what that word means? Ongoing? Perpetuity, a bond or other security with no fixed maturity date. What does in perpetuity mean? For all time, forever. Wow, forever. Forever is also synonymous with eternal, right? Isn't that what eternal means? Mm. And God says, God says, focus on what's eternal, doesn't he? So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here we go. Second Corinthians 4 and 18. Eternal. So y'all y'all catch that in case you catch these notes later. Carnegie rejected the notion that wealth should stay within families. Instead, he sought to establish organizations, including well-funded trusts and institutions that would promote his ideals in perpetuity. Well-funded trust and institutions. Okay. Oh, I gotta write that word down. Perpetuity, perpetuity equals forever, and forever equals eternal. So fix your eyes on things that are eternal. One of the things that is eternal is perpetuity. Let's do a quick study here. I was messing around the other day, or not really messing around, but I was studying the words and the using a thesaurus so perpetuity thesaurus what other words mean permanent forever eternal there it is eternally wow okay so what other words god says a focus on what's eternal so what other words are eternal, are go everlasting, never ending, endless, per, 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 perpetual, undying, immortal. I've heard that. The reason why 
I'm looking this up is if the if the word forever is inside perpetuity, I'm trying to see if there's other words permanent. Permanent, that's a word. I'm trying to think of other words we use on a daily basis. Enduring, boundless, timeless. Okay. Uh, let me also look up forever. The source. If we can find other words that we may use in today's language that mean eternal, but they're not walking around saying eternally, that might help us. Forever, noon, day and night, nonstop, persistently, repeatedly, regular, 24-7, constantly, continuously. Okay, I don't see anything that is something we use on a daily basis. Okay. All right. So let's get back to the article. He felt that children had to make their own way in life just as he did. He felt they should succeed or fail on their own. Never shy about voicing his opinions, Corny spent his later years making sure he disbursed his money on his terms. He felt it should be given away in your lifetime. Citing Carnegie's famous quote, the man who dies thus rich dies disgraced. Ooh. The man who dies rich dies disgraced. Well, that's interesting. He once, he made sure he put it into things where people have the choice to be wealthy. Hmm. I'm going to look up list of Carnegie, Carnegie, Libraries. Let's see if there's one near me. So you give them, he believes you give them the option. The following list of Carnegie Libraries in North Carolina provided detailed information on United States Carnegie Libraries in North Carolina, where 10 public libraries were built from nine grants, totaling 165000 awarded by Carnegie Corporation of New York from 1901 to 1917. I'm looking at North Carolina because that's where I'm currently located. Okay. Wow. Charlotte Library. There it is. Betty Swore Road, is it still there? Oh, closed in 1969. Now House of Student Services. Davidson, built. Now a college guest house. The building no longer standing. Hmm. So which one building still operating as a library? Green, green, green. There it is. Guilford College, Livingston College. There they are. Greensboro and Salisbury in North Carolina. Hmm. He wanted things to be perpetuity. The libraries weren't perpetuity. 
but he thought they would be. I guess as long as the one library is there, but they can be closed down. Hmm. Carnegie calls out rich peers for selflessness. Carnegie's view of philanthropy clashed with the prevailing attitude of the time. Many business barons were emerged during the second half of the 1800s. The rise of the industrial America created family dynasties with their wealth. Carnegie exuriated most of his fellow millionaires as misguided, vain, and selfish. Wow, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> Writes David Nassau, author of Car Andrew Carnegie, a finalist for the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for Biographies. Carnegie berated them for their unwillingness to harness their wealth to enrich the community. Ooh, ooh, boy. When things are on frequency, I have to tell you, you know, I didn't share this article. I kept it to myself because when I read it, I said, wait, maybe I don't need to berate, past tense, berate it, berate, scold or criticize. Andrew, Andrew. D. Carnegie pursued big, broad goals such as advancing world peace, but his efforts didn't prevent war from erupting in 1914. Oh, boy. Andrew. When World War I broke out, he retreated from review. Lewinsky said, the big lesson is humility. Even the wealthiest guy in the world can prevent world war. It's better to look for more realistic goals and leave a legacy. Hmm. Even the wealthiest guy in the world couldn't prevent world war. More realistic goals to leave a legacy. His giving transcended his personal likes and dislikes. While he was not religious, he launched a program to fund church pipe organs. He felt religious piety encouraged a strong work ethic and a clean living. Spark vibrant debate over philanthropy. Today's philanthropists can take many lessons from Carnegie. For starters, the avowed capitalists acknowledged that even thriving businesses could not solve all societal problems on their own. Industry leaders can learn from Andrew Carnegie that there are needs people have for profit ventures could not address. He also laid out his philanthropic philosophy in great detail in his public writings and speeches. In today's parlance, he embraced transparency in presenting his giving strategy. He felt an obligation to explain his giving and had enough of a thick skin to respond to critics. He got pushed back, which sparked a vibrant public debate about the role of philanthropy that continues to this day. He says that some critics argue that Carnegie was trying to burnish his image after violent labor disputes rocked the Carnegie Steel Company. Others questioned whether a tackling like Carnegie was best suited to decide how he could improve the lives of the masses. Yet Carnegie didn't claim to have all the answers. At age 72, he solicited advice from friends on how to give away his money. In 1908, he wrote letters to VIPs in his circle, including Theodore Roosevelt, Grover Cleveland, asking them how they would put the best use, $5 million or $10 million. When President Roosevelt didn't reply, Carnegie sent him a second letter. You have a hard task at present, but the distribution of money judiciously is not with, without its difficulties. Also, it involves work, harder work than ever acquisition of wealth did. Mm. <laughs> this is a great article. You have a hard task at present, but the distribution of money judiciously is not without its difficulties. Also, 
and involves harder work than ever acquisition of wealth did. Carnegie concluded in his notes, self-made business titan. Well, that's a problem right there. He's not God-made. Listen, rather than just donate money to charities, articulate an ambitious vision for how philanthropy can propel others to amass wealth, then follow through by creating organizations to fulfill the vision. In bestowing charity, the main consideration should be to help those who help themselves, help those who will help themselves. I do agree with that. Help those will help themselves. Okay, so that's the end of the article. And that made me pull up the gospel of wealth that I've never read before. Um, so this audio, I got enough time. Here we go. This, uh, this document here on the right uh, supposedly had a lot of his different essays, not just not just the gospel of wealth, but there's some other ones. We're going to do the gospel of wealth today. And if I think that it's something, it says the gospel of wealth from the North American Review. If it's something that I think we need to dive into more, then we'll also look at some of his other essays as well. Okay. And to help us out so I don't do all the reading, I've enacted... the audio book, if I can find it. Ooh, no, don't do that. Okay. It is it. There it is. Gospel of Wealth by Andrew Carnegie. It's only 32 minutes. I'll probably jump in and out of here. So we could be looking at another almost an hour. If I'm depends on how much I jump in. But I'm I'm going to be sitting here listening. And then when I see something that needs to be addressed, I will. Looks like whoever did this also underlined some things. So maybe some of these underlined things are things I'll jump in on. We'll see. So I'll let the uh, video do the reading so I don't have to do the reading. In former days, there was little difference between the dwelling dress. The Gospel of Wealth by... Andrew Carnegie. The problem of our age is the proper administration of wealth, so that the ties of brotherhood may still bind together the rich and poor in harmonious relationship. The conditions of human life have not only been changed but revolutionized within the past few hundred years. In former days, there was little difference between the dwelling, dress, food, and environment of the chief and those of his retainers. The Indians are today where civilized men then was. When I visited Sioux, I was led to the wigwam of the chief. It was just like the others in external appearance, and even within the difference was trifling between it and those of the poorest in his braves. The contrast between the palace of the millionaire and the cottage of the laborer with us today measures the change which has come with civilization. This change, however, is not to be deplored, but welcomed as highly beneficial. It is well, nay, essential for the progress of the race, that the houses of some should be homes for all that is highest and best in literature and the arts, and for all the refinements of civilization 
rather than none should be so. Much better this great irregularity than universal squalor. Without well, there can be no Mycenaeus. The good old times were not good old times. Neither master nor servant was as well situated then as today. A relapse to old conditions would be disastrous to both, not the least to him who serves, and would sweep away civilization with it. But whether the change be for good or ill is upon us, beyond our power to alter, and therefore to be accepted and made the best of. It is a waste of time to criticize the inevitable. It is easy to see how the change has come. One illustration will serve for almost every phase of the cause. In the manufacture of products, we have the whole story. It applies to all combinations of human industry, as stimulated and enlarged by the inventions of this scientific age. Formerly, articles were manufactured at the domestic hearth or in small shops which formed part of the household. The master and his apprentices worked side by side, the latter living with the master and therefore subject to the same conditions. When these apprentices rose to be masters, there was little or no change in their mode of life, and they, in turn, educated in the same routine succeeding apprentices. There was, substantially, social equality, and even political equality, for those engaged in industrial pursuits had then little or no political voice in the state. But the inevitable result of such a mode of manufacture was crude articles at high prices. Today, the world obtains commodities of excellent quality at prices which even the generation preceding this would have deemed incredible. In the commercial world, similar causes have produced similar results, and the races benefited thereby. The poor enjoy what the rich could not before afford. What would the luxuries have become the necessaries of life? The laborer has now more comforts than the landlord had a few generations ago. The farmer has more luxuries than the landlord had, and is more richly clad and better housed. The landlord has books and pictures rarer and appointments more artistic than the king could then obtain. The price we pay for this salutary change is, no doubt, great. We assemble thousands of operatives in the factory, in the mine, and in the counting house, of whom the employer can know little or nothing, and to whom the employer is little better than a myth. All intercourse between them is at an end. Rigid castes are formed, and as usual, mutual ignorance breeds mutual distrust. Each caste is without sympathy for the other and ready to credit anything disparaging in regard to it. Under the law of competition, the employer of thousands is forced into the strictest economies, among which the rates pay the labor figure prominently, and often there is friction between the employer and the employed, between capital and labor, between rich and poor. Human society loses homogeneity. The price which society pays for the law of competition, like the price it pays for cheap comforts and luxuries, is also great. But the advantage of this law are also greater still, for it is to this law that we owe our wonderful material development, 
which brings improved conditions in its train. But whether the law be benign or not, we must say of it, as we say of the change in the conditions of men to which we have referred. It is here. We cannot evade it. No substitutes for it have been found, and while the law may be sometimes hard for the individual, it is best for the race, because it ensures the survival of the fittest in every department. We accept and welcome, therefore, as conditions to which we must accommodate ourselves, the great inequality of environment, the concentration of business, industrial and commercial, in the hands of a few, and the law of competition between these, as being not only beneficial, but essential for the future progress of the race. Having accepted these, it follows that there must be great scope for the exercise of special ability in the merchant and in the manufacturer who has to conduct affairs upon a great scale. That this talent for organization and management is rare among men is proved by the fact that it invariably secures for its possessor enormous wealth. No matter where or under what laws or conditions, the experience in affairs always rate the man whose services can be obtained as a partner, as not only the first consideration, but such as to render the question of his capital scarcely worth considering. For such men soon create capital, while without the special talent required, capital soon takes wings. Such men become interested in firms or corporations using millions and estimating only simple interests to be made upon capital invested. It is inevitable that their income must exceed their expenditures and that they must accumulate wealth. Nor is there any middle ground which such men can occupy, because the great manufacturing or commercial concern which does not earn at least interest upon its capital soon becomes bankrupt. It must either go forward or fall behind. To stand still is impossible. It is a condition essential for its successful operation that it should be thus far profitable, and even that, in addition to interest on capital, it should make profit. It is a law, as certain as any of the others named, that men possessed of this peculiar talent for affair under the free play of economic forces must, of necessity, soon be in receipt of more revenue than can be judiciously expended upon themselves, and this law is as beneficial for the race as the others. All right, just wanted to step in here, let you know I'm still here. I'm just allowing the wisdom to flow i haven't found anything that i need to jump in and remark on uh, just listening objections to the foundations upon which society is based are not in order because the condition of the race is better with these than it has been with any others which have been tried of the effect of any new substitutes proposed we cannot be sure the socialist or anarchist who seeks to overturn present condition is to be regarded as attacking the foundation upon which civilization itself rests. For civilization took its start from the day that the capable, industrious workman said to his incompetent and lazy fellow, If thou dost net sow, thou shalt net reap. And thus ended primitive communism by separating the drones from the bees. 
one who studies this subject will soon be brought face to face with the conclusion that upon the sacredness of property civilization itself depends, the right of the laborer to his hundred dollars in the saving banks, and equally the legal right of the millionaire to his millions. To these who propose to substitute communism for this intense individualism, the answer therefore is, the race has tried them. All progress from that barbarous day to the present time has resulted from its displacement. Not evil, but good, has come to the race from the accumulation of wealth by those who have the ability and energy that produce it. But even if we admit for a moment that it might be better for the race to discard its present foundation, individualism, that it is a nobler ideal that a man should labor not for himself alone, but in and for a brotherhood of his fellows, and share with them all in common, realizing Swedenborg's idea of heaven, whereas he says the angels derive their happiness not from laboring for self, but for each other. Even admit all this, and a sufficient answer is, this is not evolution, but revolution. It necessitates the changing of human nature itself, a work of eons. Even if it were good to change it, which we cannot know, it is not practical in our day or even our age. Even if desirable theoretically, it belongs to another and long succeeding sociological stratum. Our duty is with what is practical now, with the next step possible in our day and generation. It is criminal to waste our energies in endeavoring or to uproot when all we can profitably or even accomplish is to bend the universal tree of humanity a little in the direction most favorable to the production of good fruit under existing circumstances. We might as well urge the destruction of the highest existing type of man because he failed to reach our ideal as favor the destruction of individualism, private property, and the law of accumulation of wealth and the law of competition, for these are the highest results of human experience, the soil in which society so far has produced the best fruit. All right, whoa, let's, let's stop there, let's stop there. So he says, for these are the highest result of human experience, the soil in which society so far has produced the best fruit. He's referring to private property, the law of accumulation of wealth, and the law of competition. It's interesting. I was just watching I was just watching a video by Dr. Miles Monroe. And he was talking about ownership. And he was talking about how, why the spirit of ownership is demonic. And you're saying the law of accumulation of wealth, private property, even in that video of Dr. Miles Monroe, he said, when you're in a kingdom of God, there is no private property. It all belongs 
to God and you just have access to it. So I find this to be interesting that this shows up right after I studied that. Let's get back in. Unequally or unjustly, perhaps, as these laws sometimes operate, and imperfect as they appear to the idealists, they are nevertheless like the highest type of man, the best and most valuable of all that humanity has yet accomplished. We start then with a condition of affairs under which the best interests of the race promoted, but which inevitably gives wealth to the few. Thus far, accepting conditions as they exist, the situation can be surveyed and pronounced good. The question then arises, and if the foregoing be correct, it is the only question with which we have to deal. What is the proper mode of administrating wealth after the laws upon which civilization is founded have thrown it into the hands of the few. And it is of this great question that I believe I offer the true solution. Okay, whoa, we better walk into something good here. What is the proper mode of administering wealth after the laws upon which civilization is founded have thrown it into the hands of the few? Okay, so maybe we might still be going further. Maybe it isn't just those three that he talked about. It will be understood that fortunes are here spoken of, not moderate sums saved by many years of efforts. The returns on which are required for the comfortable maintenance and education of families. This is not wealth, but only competence, which it should be the aim of all to acquire. There are but three modes in which surplus wealth can be disposed of. It can be left to the families of the descendant, or it can be bequeathed for public purposes, or finally, it can be administered during their lives by its possessors. Under the first and second modes, most of the wealth of the world that has reached the few has hitherto been applied. Let us in turn consider each of these modes. The first is the most injudicious. In monarchical countries, the estates and the greatest portion of the wealth are left to the first son. That the vanity of the parent may be gratified by the thought that his name and titles are to descend to succeeding generations unimpaired. The condition of this class in Europe today teaches the futility of such hopes or ambitions. The successor have become impoverished through their follies or from the fall in the value of land. Even in Great Britain, the strict law of entail has been found inadequate to maintain the status of a hereditary class it's soil gotcha thank you thank you all for playing the game All right, keep going. Is rapidly passing into the hands of the stranger. Under Republican institutions, the division of property among the children is much fairer. But the question which forces itself upon thoughtful men in all lands is, why should men leave great fortunes to their children? If this is done from affection, is it not misguided affection? Observation teaches that, generally speaking, it is not well for the children that they should be so burdened. 
neither is it well for the state. Beyond providing for the wife and daughters moderate sources of income, and very moderate allowances indeed, if any, for the sons, men may well hesitate, for it is no longer questionable that great sons bequeath oftener work more for the injury than for the good of the recipient. Wise men will soon conclude that, for the best interests of the members of their families and of the state, such bequests are an improper use of their means. It is not suggested that men who have failed to educate their sons to earn a livelihood shall cast them adrift in poverty. If any man has seen fit to rear his sons with a view to their living idle lives, or what is highly commendable, has instilled in them the sentiment that they are in a position to labor for public ends without reference to pecuniary considerations, then, of course, the duty of the parent is to see that such are provided for moderation. There are instances of millionaires' son unspoiled by wealth, who, being rich, still perform great services in the community. Such are the very salt of the earth, as valuable as, unfortunately, they are rare. Still, it is not the exception, but the rule. Okay, let's go back. Who's a soul there? There are instances of millionaire sons unspoiled by wealth who, being rich, still perform great services to the community. That men must okay. regard. And looking at the usual result of enormous sums conferred upon legislates, the thoughtful man must shortly say, I would as soon leave to my son a curse as the almighty dollar, and admit to himself that it is not the welfare of children, but family pride which inspires these enormous legacies. As to the second mode, that of leaving wealth at death for public uses, it may be said that this is only a means for the disposal of wealth, provided a man is content to wait until he is dead before it becomes of much good in the world. Knowledge of the results of legacies bequeathed is not calculated to inspire the brightest hopes of much posthumous good being accomplished. The cases are not few in which the real object sought by the testator is not attained, nor are they few in which his real wishes are thwarted. In many cases, the bequests are so used as to become only monuments of his folly. It is well to remember that it requires the exercise of not less ability than that which acquired the wealth to use it so as to be really beneficial to the community. Besides this, it may fairly be said that no man is to be extolled for doing what he cannot help doing, nor is he to be thanked by the community to which he only leaves wealth at death. Men who leave vast sums in this way may fairly be thought men who would not have left it at all had they been able to take it with them. The memories of such cannot be held in grateful remembrance, for there is no grace in their gifts. It is not to be wondered at that such bequests seem so generally to lack the blessing. The growing disposition to tax more and more heavily large estates left at death is a cheering indication of the growth of a salutary change in public opinion. The state of Pennsylvania now takes, subject to some exceptions, one-tenth of the property left by its citizen. The budget presented in the British Parliament the other day proposes to increase the death duties 
the new tax is a graduated one. Of all forms of taxation, this seems to be the wisest. Men who continue hoarding great sums all their lives, the proper use of which for public ends will work good to the community, should be made to feel that the community in the form of the state cannot thus be deprived of its proper share. By taxing estates heavily at death, and the state marks its condemnation of the selfish millionaire's unworthy lives. It is desirable that nations should go much further in this direction. Indeed, it is difficult to set bounds to the share of a rich man's estate which should go at his death to the public through agency of the state, and by all means such taxes should be graduated, beginning at nothing upon moderate sums to the dependents and increasing rapidly as the amounts swell, until of the millionaires is hoard as of Shylock's at least. The other half comes to the privy coffer of the state. This policy will work powerfully to induce the rich man to attend to the administration of wealth during his life, which is the end that society should always have in view, as being that by far most fruitful for the people. Nor need it be feared that this policy would sap the root of enterprise and render men less anxious to accumulate. For to the class whose ambition it is to leave great fortunes and be talked about after their death, it will attract even more attention and, indeed, be a somewhat nobler ambition to have enormous sums paid over to the state from their fortunes. There remains, then, only one mode of using great fortunes, but in this we have the true antidote for the temporary unequal distribution of wealth. The reconciliation of the rich and the poor, a reign of harmony. Another ideal, differing indeed from that of the communists, in requiring only the further evolution of the existing conditions, not the total overthrow of our civilization. It is founded upon the present most intense individualism and the race is projected to put it in practice by degree whenever it pleases. Under its sway, we shall have an ideal state, in which the surplus wealth of the few will become, in the best sense, the property of the many. Because administered for the common good, and this wealth passing through the hands of the few, can be made a much more potent force for the elevation of our race than if it had been distributed in small sums to the people themselves. Even the poorest can be made to see this, and to agree that great sums gathered by some of their fellow citizens, and spent for public purposes, from which the masses reap the principal benefits, are more valuable to them than if scattered among them through the courses of many years in trifling amounts. If we consider what results flow from the Cooper Institute, for example, do the best portion of the race in New York not possess of means? and compare these with those which would have arisen for the good of the masses from the equal sum distributed by Mr. Cooper in his lifetime in the form of wages, which is the highest form of distribution, being for work done and not for charity. We can form some estimate of the possibilities for the improvement of the race which lie embedded in the present law of the accumulation of wealth. Much of the sum is distributed in small quantities among the people. Would have been wasted in the indulgence of appetite, some of it in excess, and it may be doubted whether even the part put 
to the best use, that of adding to the comforts of the home, would have yielded results for the race as a race, and all comparable to those which are flowing and are to flow from the Cooper Institute from generation to generation. Let the advocate of violent and racial change ponder well this thought. We might even go so far as to take another instance, that of Mr. Tilden's bequests of five millions of dollars for a free library in the city of New York, but in referring to this, one cannot help saying involuntarily how much better if Mr. Tilden had devoted the last years of his own life to the proper administration of this immense sum, in which case neither legal contests nor any other cause of delay could have interfered with his aims. But let us assume that Mr. Tilden's millions finally become the means of giving to this city a noble public library, where the treasures of the world contained in books will be open to all forever, without money and without price. Considering the good of that part of the race which congregates in and around Manhattan Island, would its permanent benefit have been better promoted that these millions been allowed to circulate in small sums? through the hands of the masses? Even the most strenuous advocate of communism would entertain a doubt upon this subject. Most of those who think will probably entertain no doubt whatsoever. Poor and restricted are our opportunities in this life, narrow our horizon. Our best work most imperfect. But rich men should be thankful for one inestimable boon they have it in their power during their lives to busy themselves in organizing benefactions from which the masses of their fellows will derive lasting advantages and thus dignify their own lives. The highest life is probably to be reached, not by such imitation of the life of Christ or Count Tolstoy gives us, but while animated by Christ's spirit, by recognizing the changed conditions of his age and adopting modes of expressing this spirit suitable to the changed conditions under which we live, still laboring for the good of our fellows, which was the essence of his life and teaching, but laboring in a different manner. This, then, is held to be the duty of the man of wealth, first to set an example of modest, unostentious living, shunning display of extravagance, to provide moderately for the legitimate wants of those dependent upon him, and after doing so, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he is called upon to administer, and strictly bound as a matter of duty to be administered in the matter which, in his judgment, is best. All right. I just thought of something. All this time, they've been talking about administer, 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 administer. And I never looked up the word administer. I just took it as face value. But I mean, I know better than that. Nothing is face value. Administer, manage, and be responsible for running of a business organization, dispense or apply a remedy or a drug. Deal out, perform the rights of, give help or service, administer, administer, administer. Okay, and thesaurus, manage, direct, control, control, own nothing, control everything, operate, regulate, conduct. So when he says administer, he means control, dispense, not only control it, 
will control how you dispense it, right? Give, provide, apply, discharge, hand out, supervise, oversee. So when he says administer, he means, oh, there's the word. There it is right there, rule. So in another uh, video with Dr. Miles Monroe, that, well, that same video, he talks about getting in position to rule. And this document is telling us to administer. So what God is telling me through my discernment is now is the time where we position ourselves to rule, rulership, rule, one or set of explicit. Oh no, let's put rulership, define rulership. Thank you, God. Rulership, definition, the act or fact of ruling, the state of being ruled. Is there such thing as the word for rulership? Rulership. Seminin. The act or fact of ruling of the state of being ruled. Oh, you know what? Looking for the source. There it is. What is another word for rulership? Control, supremacy, domination, influence, reign, power, dominance, sovereignty. Okay, all right, we can get back to the video. Calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community, the man of wealth thus becoming the mere agent and trustee for his poorer brethren. Bringing to their... See? The man of wealth thus becoming the mere trustee and agent for his poor brethren. The man of wealth. Write that down. Thus becoming the mere trustee and agent for his poor brethren. Service his superior wisdom, experience, and ability to administer, doing for them better than they would or could do for themselves. We are met here with the difficulty of determining what are moderate sums to leave to members of the family. What is modest? ostentatious living, what is the test of extravagance? There must be different standards for different conditions. The answer is that it is as impossible to name exact amounts or actions as it is to define good manners, good tastes, or the rules of proprietary. But nevertheless, these are verities well known, although indefinable. Public sentiment is quick to know and to feel what offends these. So, in the case of wealth, the rule in regard to good taste in the dress of men or women applies here. Whatever makes one conspicuous offends the canon. If any family be chiefly known for display, for extravagance in home, table, equipage, for enormous sums ostentatiously spent in any form upon itself, if these be its chief distinctions, we have no difficulty in estimating its nature or culture. So likewise in regard to the use or abuse of its surplus wealth or to generous free-handed corporations, in good public uses 
or to unabated efforts to accumulate and hoard to the last, whether they administer or bequeath. The verdict rests with the best and most enlightened public sentiments. The community will surely judge, and its judge will not often be wrong. The best use to which surplus wealth can be put have already been indicated. These, who would administer wisely, must indeed be wise. For one of the serious obstacles to the improvement of our race is indiscriminate charity. It were better for mankind that the millions of the rich were thrown into the sea than so spent as to encourage the slothful, the drunken, and unworthy. Of every thousand dollars spent in so-called charity today, it is probable that $950 is unwisely spent. So spent indeed that as to produce the very evils which it proposes to mitigate or cure. A well-known writer of philosophical books admitted the other day that he had given a quarter of a dollar to a man who approached him as he was coming to visit the house of his friend. He knew nothing of the habits of this beggar, knew not the use that would be made of his money, although he had every reason to suspect that it would be spent improperly. This man professed to be a disciple of Herbert Spencer, yet the quarter dollar given that night will probably work more injury than all the money which its thoughtless donor will ever be able to give in true charity will do good. He only gratified his own feelings, saved them, self from annoyance, and this was probably one of the most selfish and very worst actions of his life, for in all respects he is most worthy. In bestowing charity, the main consideration should be to help those who will help themselves, to provide part of the means by which those who desire to improve may do so, to give those who desire to use the aids by which they may rise, to assist. All right, to assist, but let me ask you something. Is that biblical? Help those who help themselves. Bible verse. Christian minister, however, much more often God helps those who cannot help himself, which is what grace is about. Okay. God helps the helpless. Is that biblical? See, they've been asking this question for years. Origin of God helps those who help themselves. This phrase is used to underscore the necessity for people to take self-initiative. Can I actually, I think I agree with this thought process that Carnegie has, but if it's not biblical, unfortunately, this is not true. In fact, the man's attempt to live up to God's requirements was his experiment that was, was not true. By reason, I'll have to get myself right first. God will appreciate my effort and he will help me. In the book of Romans, Paul makes a very stark comparison between the efforts of man. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, this was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in likeness. You see how much shit we're 
Jesus said, extends at the door and knocks. That means God gives you the choice to either accept his help or reject it. For those who reject it, you will find. Create something. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. Hmm. All right, let's jump back in. I just wanted to make sure, because I, I thought we were going in the right direction, but I want to make sure. But rarely or never to do all. Neither the individual nor the race is improved by almsgiving. Those worthy of assistance, except in rare cases, seldom require assistance. The really valuable men of the race never do, except in cases of accidents or sudden change. Everyone has, of course, cases of individuals brought to his own knowledge where temporary assistance can do genuine good, and these he will not overlook. But the amount which can be wisely given by the individual for individuals is necessarily limited by his lack of knowledge for of the circumstances connected with each. He is the only true reformer who is as careful and as anxious not to aid the unworthy as he is to aid the worthy, and perhaps even more so, for in almsgiving more injuries probably done by rewarding vice than by relieving virtue. The rich man is thus almost restricted to following the examples of Peter Cooper, Enoch Pratt of Baltimore, Mr. Pratt of Brooklyn, Senator Stanford, and others who know that the best means of benefiting the community is to place within its reach the ladders upon which the aspiring can rise, parks and means of recreation by which men are helped in body and mind, works of art, certain to give pleasure and improve the public taste, and public institutions of various kinds which will improve the general condition of the people. In this manner, returning their surplus wealth to the mass of their fellows in the forms best calculated to do them lasting good, Thus, is the problem of rich and poor to be solved, the laws of accumulation will be left free, the laws of distribution free, individualism will continue, but the millionaire will be but a trustee for the poor, entrusted for a season with a great part of the increased wealth of the community, but administering it for the community far better than it could or would have done for itself. The best minds would thus have reached a stage in the development of the race in which it is clearly seen that there is no mode of disposing of surplus wealth creditable to thoughtful and earnest men into those hands it flows save by using it year by year for the general good. This day already dawns, but a little while and although without incurring the pity of their fellows, men may die sharers in great business enterprise from which their capital cannot be or has not been withdrawn, and is left chiefly a debt for public uses, 
Yet, the man who dies leaving behind many millions of available wealth, which was to administer during his life, will pass away unwelped, unhonored, unsung. No matter to what uses he leaves the dross which he cannot take with him, of such as these the public verdict will then be, the man who dies thus rich dies disgrace. Such, in my opinion, is the true gospel concerning wealth, obedience to which is destined some day to solve the problem of the rich and the poor, and to bring peace on earth among men goodwill. All right, so we just finished. So, be it the the wealthy should be a trustee for the poor. While the gospel of wealth has met a cordial reception on the side of the Atlantic, it is natural that in the motherland it should have attracted more attention because the older civilization is at present brought more clearly face to face with so so socialistic questions. The contrast between the classes and the masses between rich and poor is not yet quite so sharp in this vast fertile and developing continent of less than 20 persons per square mile. Hmm. This. So they cut off the uh, the rest of the document. Okay, so it just keeps going with the study. This is really good. So I'm glad we have this. The table of contents has the gospel of wealth, the advantages of poverty. Wow. Popular illusions about trust. Results of the label struggle, an employer's view of the labor question. So these are all, <coughs> excuse me. Does America hate England? Home rule in America, democracy in England, Americanism versus imperialism, distant possessions, the parting of the waves, popular illusions about trust. I want to read that one. Popular illusions about trust. Okay. I'm going to go look for popular illusions about trust. And if I feel like it's, well, if I feel like it's something that we need to make a video about, I'll do a second video. All right. So thank you for joining me for this study session. What I learned from this is the wealthy are to be trustees of the poor. That's powerful. I know it, it's a quick summary, but uh, that's what I'm learning. So uh, thank you. Uh, Thank you, kingdom of God, for access. Thank you, king of all kings, for dropping that wisdom on us today. Uh, the Gospel of Wealth by Andrew Carnegie. We are to be trustees. Wealthy, the wealthy are supposed to be trustees of the poor. Until next time, I'm Derek Moultrie. Thank you for joining me on this study session. <laughs>